You're listening to an audio resource from Vineyard Church of the Rockies in Fort Collins, Colorado. We are joining God's mission, transforming all things, and you're invited. To learn more about us and how you can connect, please visit votr.church. This morning, if we've never met before, my name is Jeff. I'm the lead pastor here at the Vineyard, and today we're starting a new series called Citizens of Heaven. Citizens of Heaven. It's all from the book of Philippians. And this phrase is used periodically throughout the book of Philippians, citizens of heaven. So we're going to be working our way through that book this entire month. And it's just a great reminder, that phrase, it's a great reminder that we were created for so much more. You know, the Bible teaches us that we were destined for heaven and we're called to start living like we belong to heaven this side of eternity, that we don't have to wait until we die and go to heaven to experience heaven on earth. It also means that once you give your life to Christ and once you claim citizenship of heaven, that you don't quite fit in the world in the same kind of way anymore. Your surroundings, they become a little bit different because you've given up your belonging to this world and now you're living as a temporary resident or what the Bible sometimes refers to as living as a foreigner in this land. It's also a biblical phrase. And when you start living as a foreigner, when you start living as a minority or in this case, a a citizen of heaven, everything around you just isn't quite what you anticipated. There are some differences. You know, there's two separate times in my life when I lived as a minority, and I could summarize those two seasons of my life with two words, exhausting and transformational. Exhausting and transformational. No doubt I'm a different man because of the seasons of my life. I'm a different leader and pastor because of it, but it was both exhausting and transformational. Exhausting because when you live as a minority in comparison to your surroundings, the, the, the world that you're living in isn't your natural resting posture. The first time this happened, I was living in Spain. I took a semester abroad in college, and everything was different. The language was different. The culture was different. The values were different. Even when you ordered food out, it was different. I remember ordering a Coke with my lunch, and I got the cutest little European Coke. And I was so bothered. I was like, I'm going to need five of those. I need the biggie sized Coke. I'm used to the American-sized Coke. Everything was different, though. It wasn't just ordering out. Everything about life was different. And at times, it was exhausting. Some of you in this room right now, some of you online, you're living in the United States, but this is not your country of origin. You can probably resonate to a degree that you're translating culture all of the time. It can be taxing. But living as a minority is also transformational. When Natalie and I first got married, we helped start a ministry that served inner city youth in Kansas City. We bought a house in the middle of that neighborhood, and that neighborhood did not look a lot like small town Iowa. It was a community, it was 98% black, and looking back at our time there, I am so grateful for our neighbors. 
I'm so grateful for the friends that we met, the teenagers we had in our home, because they were so patient with Natalie and I as we were learning a new culture. I'll never forget one of the men two houses down. His name was Mr. Carter. He's one of the most amazing men I ever met. He was in his early 90s when I first met him, and he just invited us into his life. As we got to know him, we found out that this man had fought in World War II. Battle of the Bulge, to be precise. And after he survived World War II, he moved back to Kansas City, bought a home, and lived there for the rest of his life. I mean, he saw the, the neighborhood rise in affluence. He lived through the civil rights movement in Kansas City, which has its own peculiar history. And then he saw the ultimate demise of that neighborhood through things like redlining and white flight. And when we first met Mr. Carter, we would just spend hours sharing stories together. I learned so much from that man. Natalie and I finished our season in Kansas City. We were there for about 10 years. And I always say, both Natalie and I say, that although we were following God thinking that we were going to love and serve our neighbors, we left Kansas City receiving way more from them than we could ever give away. It changed us. It transformed us. And living as a minority will, will do that. It exposes some of the hidden anxiety that you have in your own heart that you didn't even know was there, but also increases your empathy. And you learn what it's like to always be covering your tracks, always wondering how you're being perceived or if you're saying the right thing or how it might be judged. I remember learning what it's like to walk into a room, wondering if you're going to see anybody who looks a little bit like you or if you're going to be the only one there. It was exhausting and it was transformational and I'm a different man because of it. We're a different family because of it. It's part of the reason why at our church, we want to be as hospitable as we can to make room for every race and every culture, knowing that as we do, collectively, we're a better expression of the kingdom of God. This was temporary for me, like I said, a semester in Spain, about 10 years in Kansas City, but for some, this is your constant and current reality. Now, whether it's temporary or it's your constant reality, both of these cases, your life and mine, they serve as an example or a great illustration about what we're talking about today. That these moments, they help us understand what it's like for every believer, whether you're white, black, or brown, every believer who calls upon the name of the Lord because you've given your citizenship to another kingdom, but you're living in this world. And all of a sudden, your surroundings are a little bit different. Every believer lives every day in a world that is not your own. As Christian, you're constantly living in tension. You live, you live between the tension of, of heaven and earth, the, the tension of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world, the values of Christ or the values of this world, and we don't quite fit. We don't quite speak the same language or live the same lives. At least we're not called to live the same lives as the world around us. It can be exhausting, but it can also be transformational. And this is by design. It's by design because once, once you've pledged allegiance to another kingdom, you're all of a sudden, you're living as a citizen of heaven, but you're living on earth. 
I mentioned it earlier, but this entire series will be taught from the book of Philippians. It's found in the New Testament. If you've never read Philippians, it's about in this spot of your Bible. You can find Philippians, like I said, if you've never read it, in my sermon notes, there's a nine-minute video by the Bible Project that will give you the summary of the entire book. I would really recommend you watching that on your own time, and, and I would encourage you to read the book of Philippians during the month of February. Maybe read it once a, a week for four weeks. It's four chapters long, so you could read Philippians every week, the whole book, and as you do, I mean, at the Vineyard, we believe that God's Word is alive and active, and so as you engage with Scriptures, we trust that He'll be speaking to you. And the truth of his word will, will build roots in your heart and begin to live out in your life. So I would encourage you to read Philippians during this series. And I also just want to mention we have an invite Sunday. We have an invite Sunday planned for every series. And the invite Sunday for uh, February is the last Sunday of the month, February 26th. We would encourage you to bring a friend to that sermon. Of course, I, I, tend, to, I tend to believe that every Sunday is invitable, that every sermon, hopefully, if, if that's a word, invitable, I'm not exactly sure. But you can bring people whenever you want. We're an invite culture. That's part of who we are. But specifically, we're kind of circling one message in every series, and February 26th is the message for this series. It's going to be a powerful time together because every passage in the book of Philippians, it's like every passage, it's just filled with action and significance, and an invitation for you to have an impact in the kingdom of God. It seems like Paul is always interested in two major things when he's writing to his churches. One, introducing people to the person of Jesus Christ, and two, strengthening the church. This is like what he is all about, introducing people to Jesus and strengthening the church. And I pray every Sunday that's what we get to do together. Introduce people to Jesus, strengthen the church. If you need in introduction to Jesus, if you're with us here at the Vineyard and you've never met Jesus, you've never given your life to the Lord, every single week I aim to do that. And at the end of our time together this morning, we're going to give you an opportunity to respond to Christ, to make him the Lord and Savior of your life. And we're going to invite you to respond to that action this morning, to become a citizen of heaven. Every week we gather People respond to the gospel and give their life to Christ. And I wonder how many of us, either in this room or potentially online, need to make that decision for the very first time today. And if you've already made that decision, then like Paul, I pray these messages and these scriptures and the passages that we read, I pray that they encourage you and they inspire you to begin to identify with the reality that as a Christian, you are a citizen of heaven. So let's open up in chapter 1 by reading verse 27 to 30 together. This is what Paul writes. Above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. Then, whether I come and see you again or only hear about you, I will know that you are standing together with one spirit and one purpose, fighting together for the faith, which is the good news. Don't be intimidated in any way by your enemies. This will be a sign to them that they are going to be destroyed, but that you are going to be saved, even by God himself. For you have been given not only the privilege of trusting in Christ, but also the privilege of suffering for him. We are in this struggle together. You have seen my struggle in the past, and you know that I am still in the midst of it. How do you not love 
the Bible after reading passages like that. I just love all of Paul's letters. I love the book of Philippians, and I love this scripture. Verse 27 practically serves as a topic sentence for our entire series. You must live as citizens of heaven. Paul is being so bold in reminding his followers that that we actually belong to a different kingdom. We belong to him. We belong in heaven. And until the day of Christ's return, we will live as foreigners in this land. And listen, just as as one of your pastors, I, I deeply, deeply care that this gets placed inside of your heart. I deeply, deeply care that you become everything that God has created you to be everything that God has created you to be. For some of us, that means we need to go on a journey of healing. For some of us, that means that that some spiritual disciplines need to be added to our life or some bad habits need to be dropped from our life. For some of us, it means that we need to learn what it's like to live in community, worshiping God. But I deeply, deeply want you to become everything God has created you to be. And in order for that to happen, it's important for us to wrestle with some of these words from Paul, specifically that that he says you need to live like you're a citizen of heaven, not just think about it. You actually have to live like it. It's not enough to just read this book and simply agree with it. It needs to take root in your mind and in your heart. It needs to have some legs to it in your life. Real faith, at least the way the, the Bible talks about real faith, always leads to action. It always leads to change and transformation. That's why Paul is being so strong in his language here, and it's why I have so much confidence in being strong with my language, because I'm just repeating his. Verse 27, above all, you must live as a citizen of heaven. You can't just think about it. You can't just read about it. You just can't pull out your phone and post about it. You actually need to live like you're a citizen of heaven. And by the way, it doesn't mean live like someday in the future. It means live today. That somehow, someway, when you give your life to Christ, you actually get to borrow from the future and have it played out in your life today. You get to look towards eternity, but you, begin to be, you, get be, you can begin to live like it today. Where is eternity right now when I'm trying to spit that out of my mouth? You look to the future, you look to heaven, and then it begins to play out right before you. Living as a citizen of heaven today, not just for the future. That means we respond to the gospel. It means we surrender and risk in change. And I love Paul's writings because whenever he is this direct, he's almost always giving you directives. When Paul is bold and he gives you a direct word, you must live as a citizen of heaven. If you just keep reading, and Philippians 1 is definitely this same case, if you just keep reading, he almost gives you directives on what that would look like after he gives you the direct word. You hear the bold statement, you see what it looks like applied to our lives. This is exactly what Paul does in the latter half of verse 27. He continues, above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. Conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the good news of Christ. Now, this is an interesting phrase. It's an interesting phrase. It's actually a a scandalous phrase in Paul's time. The phrase, conduct yourselves, it wasn't a religious word at all. It was actually a political word. 
And as he's talking about living in the kingdom of heaven, not in the kingdom of this world, he's using provocative language to kind of draw a line in the sand. This is a political word. In the original language, it means to live as a citizen of such and such place. It's hardly ever used in the Bible. And outside of the Bible, it's almost 100% used in reference to living as a citizen of Rome, the empire of their day. To be a good, loyal subject to the Roman Empire, a, a 21st century modern translation might be to be a good American, to be patriotic, or as the country classic would say, proud to be an American. Because I'm not going to sing it for you, you just have to sing it in your head. <laughs> of course, the biggest difference in what Paul is saying is that he's not using a geopolitical boundary as his reference, he's using a spiritual boundary. He's using the kingdom of God as his reference. Paul would say to you today, hey, there's nothing wrong with loving uh, the country that you were born in. There's nothing wrong with having a passport for whatever country and, and, and appreciating that country. But you can never forget that once you gave your life to Christ, you, became a, you, became, or you pledged your allegiance to a whole other kingdom. It's not just the kingdom you're a part of here. You actually pledge your allegiance to a new sovereign ruler and, and your trust and your hope and your future is placed in him and his kingdom, not just what you see all around you. It's the kingdom of God above all other things. N.T. Wright, one of my favorite theologians, he offered this modern day translation. He wrote, your public behavior must match up to the gospel of the king. Your public behavior must match up to the gospel of the king. In other words, does your behavior match your allegiance? Does your behavior match your allegiance? I know that's a, that's a bold question. Like I'm wading out into the waters little by little with you. But Paul was bold, so I feel like I can be bold. Does your private intentions match your public demeanor? Are these things lined up with integrity? Living as a citizen of heaven means all kinds of things. And quite honestly, it means all kinds of things that people don't usually want me to talk about. Like living a life of holiness, or being incredibly generous, or gathering together to worship, serving with joy, loving your neighbor. It means all the things that you would think it means. And remember from earlier, it's not just thinking or agreeing about that kind of stuff. It's actually putting it into practice and living out your life of faith, your citizenship to heaven. See, we have to allow the words of God to, to take root in our heart and to play themselves out through our leg. We have to have a cadence of this truth in our life. For some of us, now, we've never made a decision to start living for Christ and to start living for heaven. And I mentioned earlier that if that's you, we're going to give you a chance to make the most important decision of your life in just a short while. But for many of us, whether it's the first decision or the 5,000th decision, we need to allow our faith to inform our lifestyle. Our faith needs to inform our lifestyle. See, it's all part of living as a citizen of heaven. It's all part of this. If we go back to Scripture again, Paul is kind of just warming up. If you look at the next part, at the second half of verse 27, see, he started with, live as citizens of heaven, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel, and then on the heels of that, he continues by saying, then I will know that you're standing together 
with one spirit and one purpose, fighting together for the faith, which is the good news. Paul says, stand together. Stand together. Fight together. It should come as no surprise to you that we lined up our preaching calendar with our church calendar. And as we talk about standing together and fighting together, that we're also encouraging you to sign up for small groups today. It mysteriously all works together. That we're called to this. We're called to live life in community with other believers who can sharpen us and encourage us and help us stand when the world is coming against us. Living as a citizen of heaven means you live in community. That's what it means. You stand together. You lock arms with one another. We quickly forget, don't we, that the Christian life is a lot more like a battlefield than a playground. The Christian life is a lot more like a battlefield than a playground. And if you're living that life isolated and alone, man, it's easy to get knocked down and not have the strength to get back up. We need each other. We have to stand together and fight together. We talk a lot at this church about how it is a personal decision to give your life to Christ, that no one can make that decision for you. It has to come from the depths of your personal heart. I can't make that decision for you. Your parents can't make that decision for you. You have to make that decision. You have to wrestle with that for yourself. But once you make that personal decision, it was never intended that you would live it out all alone. You were created and designed for deep and meaningful relationships with one another. And Paul knew this. Paul knew it, and Paul wrote about it. Paul knew the importance of standing together and fighting together because the believers in his day and age, they were getting pushed and punished and persecuted for their faith all the time, and he knew that they were going to need each other. He knew it. Verse 28, don't be intimidated in any way by your enemies. Don't be intimidated in any way by your enemies. Fear, for many of us, it just, it has to be uprooted out of our lives. It has to be uprooted by the power of God, and I'm telling you, it is unlikely that you are going to be able to do it alone. It's very unlikely. That's why we gather together and worship with one another. It's why we stand together. It's why we pray together. Because it's through community and the power of God's spirit that you can be set free. That you'll be empowered by God's spirit and you'll be able to stand firm and not be intimidated when you're experiencing pushback from the kingdom of this world. And we've all had moments of fear, haven't we? We've all had moments. Is it just me? Am I the only one who, who has felt like God was tapping me on the shoulder to share my faith with someone and I, and I shrink back in fear instead, not knowing how they would respond? Is that just me or is that maybe anybody else in the room? I've got forehead nods. <laughs> Come on, this is us, right? I mean, we've all experienced fear. I've driven up into my driveway and I felt like the Lord said, go pray for your neighbor. And instead, I've given him the head nod and the little wave and I've gone into my garage. This happens to us. It God invites us to, to give big and, and give generously, and instead, because of fear that maybe we won't have enough, we shrink back and we just kind of give the leftovers or the scraps. This is a, a real thing for many of us. We struggle in these areas. Paul is writing to all of us this morning, 
Don't be intimidated. Don't shrink back in fear. The best way to stand up for your faith is to be empowered by his Holy Spirit and to be strengthened by locking arms with one another. Standing firm together, becoming everything that God has created us to be. He's saying the best way to make it through fear, the best way to stand up for your faith at your job, the best way to stand up for your faith in your friend group or when your family is all gathering is to live as a citizen of heaven, empowered by him, standing together. During our service, you know, when we ask people to give their life to the Lord for the very first time, it can be an intimidating step. But God's spirit is moving in you, drawing you to make that decision. When you're at school and you stand up for your faith, even when the rest of your class is going a different direction, God's spirit will empower you. When you find yourself on the precipice of sharing your faith with your neighbor or praying for your neighbor and you feel that fear, you have to remember that the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives inside of you. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives inside of you. And if you don't know what this feels like, if you don't know what that fear or that intimidation feels like, listen, this is usually the place I stand when I'm about to give you a hard word. This is what my staff has told me when I moved to this position. It's usually because I'm about to say something that maybe I should or maybe I shouldn't, but I'm too, I'm deep, too deep in now, so I'm not... If you, if you don't know what that fear and intimidation feels like, could it be an indicator that the people around you don't know where your citizenship actually lies? Could it be? Because I promise you that if you begin to speak about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of this world will try to silence you. It will. The minute you open your mouth and start to declare that Jesus Christ is your Lord, the world will try to silence you. I'm not saying it is an indicator. I'll let you sit with that in the Lord, but it could be an indicator that maybe the people around you don't know where your allegiance truly lies. These are the moments where we need the Lord. These are the moments where we need the Holy Spirit to fill us afresh and empower us again so that we can stand together and not be intimidated. That's at this point in the scripture where Paul kind of takes a little bit of a turn, and it gets a little interesting. He just piles it on one after another after another. And in verse 29, he says this really peculiar thing. He says, for you've been given not only the privilege of trusting in Christ, but also the privilege of suffering for him. What on earth does that even mean? The privilege of suffering? That doesn't feel like the American gospel, does it? That's not really what I'm supposed to tell you, to encourage you, but it is a biblical gospel. That there, there is a privilege to giving your life to Christ. There's also a privilege to suffering for Christ. You know, so all throughout Scripture, we are taught that suffering and persecution is a gift. That somehow persecution and suffering is a gift. Jesus said, if they did it to me, they'll do it to you. Don't be surprised. If you live for the gospel of heaven, the gospel of this world will come against you. But do not be intimidated because you're filled with God's spirit and you're standing together, fighting the good fight of faith. See, persecution, it does this really interesting thing to our hearts. It solidifies our faith like nothing else. 
It solidifies your faith like nothing else. It galvanizes it. Recent studies have have been talking a lot about how teenagers keep their faith from the moment they give their life to Christ all the way through adulthood. And it's a really interesting study. There's three or four things at the top of the list. Parents, number one, parents, the number one reason is your faith. If they see your faith modeled, there's a better chance it will take root in their lives and they'll walk it out into their adulthood. Teenagers, one of the biggest reasons, teenagers, is that you're engaged and serving and an active member of a local church. This is why we invite you into worship with us. This is why we invite you to serve in kids' ministry. This is why we take you on mission trips because we want you to be engaged in the life of a local church. But you know what number three was? Persecution. If teenagers stand up for their faith and they feel the oppression of the world and they stand firm, it's almost guaranteed that they will keep their faith into their adulthood. Now, why is this? Why is it? It's because something happens when you suffer for the gospel. It solidifies your faith and you won't discard it very easily because you've already taken the stand. And you've already realized that if he is for me, the world cannot be against me. Something happens when you stand for your faith. It's discipleship. It's like a PhD in discipleship. And as parents, this is so hard because we tend to want to insulate our children and protect them from harm's way. And of course, teenagers, like I've not met a single human, let alone a teenager, who enjoys pain who enjoys persecution, or who enjoys suffering. But if you can partner with God and you can play the long game and you can see the future and you can see what God might do through that persecution or he might do through that suffering, then you can withstand it today because you're living as a citizen of heaven, trusting that he's shaping you into everything that he's created you to be. Everything that he's created you to be. Your faith may get shaken, but it will never get stolen if you can stand with him in that moment. Suffering for Christ and being strengthened by others. Somehow in the economy of God, this is a privilege. This is a privilege. As I preach this, as I prepare to close, I just want to ask everybody in this room a few questions. If you're tuning in online, let me ask you these same questions. First and foremost, do you need to give your life to Christ this morning? Do you need to become a citizen of heaven starting today? This is where it starts. It starts with you giving your life to Christ and saying that your top priority is Jesus and that you want to become a citizen of heaven. In a room this size with all the people tuning in online, I can't help but wonder how many of us need to make that decision today. It might even be that a long time ago, you pledged your allegiance to Christ, but you turned your back and walked a different way, and you're here this morning, and you're wondering, am I still let in? Can I come back? A hundred percent yes. The grace of God says that a humble heart that comes before him and confesses that he is faithful to forgive and establish you on firm footing in the kingdom of God once again. One hundred percent you can come back. For others in this room, you've already decided to become a follower of Christ, and the question is a little bit different for us. 
It's not, do I need to become a citizen of heaven for the very first time? It's more of a question of how am I living for heaven today? How am I living for heaven today? Is there any part of your life that needs to come into agreement with the gospel of the king? It might be something to stop, but it might be something to add. I have found that if you just add the right habits, 90% of the ugly ones have the tendency to fall away on their own. It might be something for you to add to your life. But think about this passage. Think about what it says. Conduct your life in a manner worthy of the gospel. Stand together, united as one. Fight for the faith. Don't be intimidated. Even be willing to suffer together. When you hear those phrases, then ask yourself a question. Am I living as a citizen of heaven, or am I only thinking about it? Because I am confident that if we come to him with a humble heart, open to receive everything that he has for us, that he is faithful to move. He is faithful to speak, and he will begin transforming you from this day forward. Let's pray.